If you've been with us over the course of the summer, you'll know that we've been going through a sermon series on the book of Acts called Being the Church. And Acts is a historical account of the early church. And it, uh, in this sermon series, we started at the first chapter of Acts and worked our way all the way through chapter 13. And in it, we saw how the early church grew and expanded and struggled and worked out just that, being the church. But we're going to leave the book of Acts now. We're going to kind of close it. And we're going to be looking forward as we, unfortunately, I have to say this, as we end out the summer. I know it's sad. Um, But we also get to welcome new people into our congregation. We'll see a lot of people, uh, students returning uh, for classes or uh, checking out our church. So it's it's also an exciting time at the same time. Uh, as we end out the summer. But every, every year around this time, as a church, we like to hit stop and, and, and refresh and remind ourselves, what are we all about? What is our vision as a church? What is our, our vision for ourselves and for our city? I might ask this to you. What is the vision for your life? Do you have a vision for your life? Do you have a sort of purpose statement by which you live by? If you don't, if you're a Christian, I want you to listen closely to this message. And in thinking about vision, we go through this process of, you could say, reflection. Asking the question like, if this is who God is, and this is what he's done, then then who are we, and how are we, and what are we to do in the light of what he's done? Or another way of saying this, vision is the answer to this question, how, how does the unchanging, timeless, eternal truth of the gospel apply to this city at this time and in this place? So that's what a theological vision is. And so this week and next week, we're going to be talking about the vision of Church 21. And our vision is that, that we exist to see the truth, the goodness And the beauty of the gospel saturate and transform Montreal for the glory of God and the good of all people, anticipating his return. And it's this vision that in turn informs all of our practice, all of our mission, all of our ministries. It's informed by that. So if you've been here for a while, you might have heard statements like, change the city collectively, that we want to change the city collectively. Change for change groups, city for city groups, collective for our Sunday gathering, what we're doing right now. But all of that flows out of the vision, and so I want to unpack that vision this week, next week. That we exist to see the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of the gospel saturate and transform Montreal for the glory of God and the good of all peoples. So this week we're going to be doing uh, a vision for gospel saturation. Let me just put up that title slide. Ah, thank you. A little slow. Um, and next week will be a vision for gospel renewal. And uh, if this week is all about how the gospel, uh, how we want to absorb the gospel internally to the point we're saturated, then next week is about how that, that same soaked saturation overflows and renews uh, externally. And so you can see as I say this, I keep mentioning the word gospel. The word, you know, we're all about uh, the gospel. And I've tried to think, you know, if you were new and if you're visiting here, what would be the most important thing? What would be the, the most crucial thing that I'd want you to know about who we are, what our vision is? 
And what I'd want you to know at heart is that we are unapologetically all about the gospel of Jesus here, which is why we say that we're, you know, a gospel-centered church. We use that kind of terminology. And I'd also want you to know that we consider ourselves to be, um, and you'll hear more about this next week, a missional and a spirit-led church. But those two are informed by the gospel of Jesus. And so we're gospel-centered. And if you've been here for a while, you've probably heard this terminology, and you might have wondered, well, why? Why do we always put the gospel at the center of all we think and feel and, and do and ultimately are? Why are we gospel-centered? So to respond to this, we're going to be looking at the text of Isaiah 55 today, which is, in a way, a sort of prophetic or visionary answer to this, to this question. And we're going to be looking at it through these through three movements. First, that the gospel must come down, the gospel must go deep, and the gospel must go wide. So first, the gospel must come down. But to do this, I, I want to ask for God's help. Lord, I pray that you would use your word to reach our hearts, to saturate down deeply, and to change us from the inside out, as only you can do by your spirit. I ask for your help in Jesus' name. I'm utterly dependent on you. Amen. So Isaiah 55 and verse 1, if you have your Bible, you can open to it with me. I'll be going through the verses again and again this morning. So verse 1. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So here we have a, an invitation to come. A really good sounding invitation, right? Wine, milk, these are sort of uh, the, the luxuries of the ancient world. These are the workings of a, of a feast. And here the writer Isaiah is, is giving a prophetic vision of when the people of God are returned to their land and reunited with God himself. It's a vision in which God makes, it says in verse 3, if you look, an everlasting covenant with them. And it's represented by this feast. And so this feast is a feast of communion with God. And this is what the gospel, we'll see, is ultimately all about. The good news of Jesus is ultimately about enjoying and knowing God forever. And this is what the gospel invites us into. But here at the end of verse 1 it says, Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Which brings us to our first dilemma. How are we to buy something without money? One of Sandra's uncles recently, we were on vacation and we were visiting them. I didn't know him very well. So he was telling me how he first met his wife. And he said, you know, when I moved from Sri Lanka to London, I, I moved there to be a student, a doctoral, a do, to, to study to be a doctor. And he didn't have a lot of money. He was a poor student. And very early on, he met a girl, of course, who was a nurse. And uh, he really liked her. So he pursued her. And eventually, he managed to convince her to come out on a date with him. So they go to this nice restaurant. They have a nice meal. And at the end of the meal, the waitress comes and brings the bill. And he looks at the bill, and he realizes, there is no way that I can pay for this meal. 
<laughs> he's a poor student, right? And so he does some quick thinking. And he follows the waitress back into the kitchen and tries to convince the waitress that he'll pay for the meal, not with money, but by washing dishes in the back of the restaurant. <laughs> and it didn't work out. <laughs> Actually, what ended up, she ended up hearing about this, and she paid for the meal herself. <laughs> but isn't this what so many of us, in a way, are trying to do? That we're trying to buy something we cannot afford, and yet we insist on trying to earn it. See, virtually every philosophy and religion of the world will tell you that through your good deeds or your good behavior, through these five pillars or this eightfold path, you can earn your acceptance with God. That each of us, if you, if you just try hard enough, you can earn your place at the feast. But then you ask me, well, how, Jordan, does that look in a, a post-Catholic secular culture like our own? Well, the reality is that God or not, you're still looking, we're still looking for acceptance. It might be through a sort of cloud of Instagram or what do they call them, Twitter followers. Through trying to obtain a certain position in your career so you can exist amongst a certain social, be accepted by a certain social strata. Or having your family in such a way that you fit in with another sort of group of families, well-behaved children. So secular culture or not, my point is this, that our desire to earn acceptance, to earn a place at the table, continues on. And we have this hope in us that God or whatever group of people this is will look at us and say, well, you know, you're in, you qualify, you made it. I see you, I know you, you're accepted. But where does this leave us then? Anxious, fickle, we're always wondering, are we good enough? Did we make it? Are we really accepted? It's fickle and we're anxious because, well, one of the reasons that people's opinions, they keep, they're not static. People's opinions of you, they continue to change. The social opinion continues to change. It continues to move on. So are you still accepted? I don't know. It's the sense of that. And it's, you could at least reason with me that if your acceptance was from God, at least that would be stable. At least that would be fixed secure. But the problem with God's acceptance is it's, it's a sort of acceptance that can't be earned. That no matter how good your deeds tally up to, no matter how much you excel in your career, it's, it's like showing up at a nice restaurant. It's beyond like showing up at a nice restaurant. It's like showing up at the feast of the king of kings and saying, let me in, I'll, I'll wash your dishes. And so this is our first dilemma that we want to try and earn a place at the feast. And this is what is called moralism, that if I obey, then I will be accepted. And it's the default, I want to say, a default position of your human heart and mine. And it's actually completely different than what God has in store for you and me. But there's also an alternate default, a sort of second dilemma. Let's look at verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and labor for that which does not satisfy? Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? When I was young, until the time I was about five years old, my family lived beside a, a boat marina. 
And the marina had a, a restaurant and a candy store attached to it. Every, every week or so, my mom would give us a quarter and say, you can go buy some candy at the candy store. Back then, they had penny candies. And so I would buy my 25 candies and put them in my brown little brown paper bag. And, you know, oh, the pleasure of eating one candy at a time. <laughs> but then, imagine, let's say, as an adult, right? I'm getting my weekly pay, and I'm going to the grocery store, and I'm spending all my money on candy. And she's like, Jordan, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, the joy it brings me to eat these candy. <laughs> Lucretius, foolish, right? Makes no sense, right? I mean, we don't have pennies, but if, if we still had pennies coming in, like the amount of candy, the sickness I would suffer from, <laughs> right? No nourishment. <laughs> it wouldn't satisfy me, would it? Right? I'd be taking the money meant to be spent on food for the family and instead of buying bread, you know, candy. Like this verse says, why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Satisfaction, that's part of this, right? We live in a culture that is obsessed with satisfaction and pleasure. We pursue it relentlessly. It's in our books, our self-help books, right? It's in our movies, it's our Spotify 10, top 10 playlists, and it's, it's in a way, maybe you can see it now, it's a sort of reaction against that first dilemma, that first default of the human heart. It says, you know what, forget trying to earn other people's acceptance, more or less God's acceptance. Right? I'm just going to live for myself. I'm going to live for my own fulfillment. I'm going to live for my own acceptance, whatever that is. I'm, as long as it makes me happy, that's what matters, that's what's good, that's what I'm going to do. And so personal happiness then becomes this ultimate goal. It's just the other end of the extreme. And yet we know, if we're honest, there's a sort of inconvenient truth to all of what's happening. Studies more and more, every recent study shows that our society isn't getting more happy. Not at all. It's actually getting less happy. It isn't working. Just this week I read another story um, of a guy, uh, Beckett Cook, who got to the top of his career top of his game. He was a a set designer in the fashion industry, a Hollywood socialite, moved amongst the rich and the famous. Uh, He set up shoots for Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. Uh, These are magazines. And then one day, he's at a fashion party in Paris, and he, he just felt empty. He says it like this. I had done everything in Hollywood, met everyone, traveled everywhere, yet I was overwhelmed with emptiness. It was one of the most intense, is this all there is? moments in my life. And I wonder if that's a moment that you might have felt as well. If you've ever been up to the top of your game, you've been at the pinnacle of that thing that you were hoping to achieve, that thing that you thought would make you happy, and then and only then at that point you have this overwhelming sense. Is, is, is this all there is? And this is our second dilemma. Hedonism, the relentless pursuit of pleasure. Living in a society that has never been more comfortable and wealthy and affluent as it's ever been, and at the same time never been more anxious and depressed and distressed. Our souls are starving. It's like we're still eating candy. It's still making us sick. We're not getting the nourishment we need. Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy 
And so we have this moralism, leaving us anxious, selfish. We have this dissatisfied hedonism, a sort of starvingness. And what does God say to this? Verse 2, listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourself in rich food, incline your ear and come to me. Here that your soul may live. We see in this verse that we are to delight in rich food. There's pleasure here. There's, in a sense, there's nothing wrong with, with pleasure. But what do we need to do? It says, incline your ear. We need to, to listen to the author of all pleasure itself. So that what? So that our soul might live. So what does he say? Verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And why? For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And my ways higher than your ways. God says then that his, his thoughts and his ways are not just different than ours. They are higher. They are greater. And how much greater? As, as high as the heavens are higher than the earth greater. You see, that's something you can't measure. It's a way of saying that we are totally, totally out of league here. That our thoughts and our ways, they really miss the league of God's heavenly perfection. And this is actually missing the league, missing the mark. This is actually what sin is. And this is our default human paradigm. And I'm talking about every human I've ever met, myself included, right? Is we're either trying to earn God's acceptance and favor, I obey and therefore I'm accepted, or we scrap it and we say, you know what, forget that. I'm going to try and earn it by my own ways. I'm going to earn it through pleasure or whatever. And so at both ends, moralism or hedonism, right, it's just really about us Right? It's a selfishness, and it's, it's, it's leaving us starving and anxious. It's totally soul-diminishing. And I think you know that. I think I felt it before. And so what are we to do? Verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. We saw that. And then what? Let him return to the Lord that he might have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So these verses, they tell us to, to seek, call, and return to the Lord for, for pardon. That's forgiveness. To, 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 to return is to repent. But how are we to do this? How are we to seek, call, and return to the Lord in heaven if we were stuck here on earth with our unrighteous and totally out of league thoughts and ways, our moralism and our hedonism? See, we, we can't get there. We can't go up. But God came down, verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return but water the earth, making it to bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so as the rain and the snow come from heaven, so the word came down. He, Jesus, proceeded from the Father. He took on humanity and came to earth. And this is our first point, that the gospel must come down. For what? To accomplish that which the Father purposed in our verse. See, 
We're, so that we, right, we who are stuck in our unrighteous thoughts, our moralistic and our hedonistic ways could come near to God, that we could know God, that we could feast with him, that we could be in communion with him. Verse 6 and 7, that we would call upon him while he is near, that we'd seek him while he is to be found, that we would repent and turn to him that he might have compassion on us and pardon us for our sin. How can God, how can God pardon, just pardon the unrighteous for their sin? And the answer to this is actually, to answer this is actually to answer our first dilemma. That one, how are we to buy money without bread? Well, it's because someone else could afford to pay the cost. When we were dead, in other words, when we were bankrupt, when we were starving in our sin, Jesus paid And when we are toiling with that which would never satisfy, asking, is this all there is? Jesus labored, it says, for the joy that was set before him and endured the cross for you. And on that cross, Jesus, it says, who knew no sin became sin for us. So that we, you, I, who are sinners, could take on his sinlessness. There's an exchange that takes place. It's completely radical. And to top that all off, it's his resurrection power. It's through his resurrection power that he doesn't just cancel the penalty of sin. He extends the power to overcome sin to us, to defeat sin. And so do you and I deserve this? No, absolutely not. But to say yes to it is to receive something just that, something we don't deserve. This is, this is what grace is. This is what this passage is. This is an invitation to a feast of grace. It cannot be earned by your efforts. It's greater than any pleasure that you are trying to pursue in your life. And you must come to receive it in faith and trust. And yet this is the most radical, right? Coming in faith and trust and receiving a feast of grace that we can't earn. Most difficult part for us to accept because we come to this feast with nothing. We come empty-handed. We can't bring anything to it. And yet we're offered bread, it says, that satisfies. And so I hope you can see from what I'm saying that the gospel then is just, it's not just another option on the table. It's not just another way to God. It's not hedonism. It's not moralism. It's completely different than that. His ways are not our ways. The gospel is about God coming down to us so that we can have communion with him. And it's not our human efforts then. It's is not something humanity comes up with. It's not moralism on one side or hedonism on the other. It's not something from the left or the right. It's not something we cooked up in some religious lab somewhere. No, it's something that came down had to come down. It's what we call revelation. Romans talks about the gospel being the righteousness of God revealed. It's revelation. The gospel must come down. And so, how does this aspect of the gospel, it coming down, shape our vision as a church? Well, it reminds us that God's ways are not our ways. Right? That our vision... It cannot be shaped by our best intentions or our strongest desires, but by God himself. 
through a, a careful process of, of listening to the Spirit, of knowing and abiding in His Word. And this is all coming from this idea, this aspect of the gospel, that it must come down. And second, is that the gospel must go deep. Remember verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving sowed seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The word, like rain, it will not return empty. It will accomplish that which it was purposed for. It will soak in. The gospel is able to bring life. It is able to transform. It it falls on our dry hearts, and then slowly and surely, little sprouts of life begin to perk up, to come up. Slow, yes, at first, like snow. I think here in Montreal, we know very well what that looks like, right? Sometimes there's a latency. Snow takes, it, it doesn't immediately soak in to the earth, but eventually sweet drops of gospel goodness penetrate the surface of our hearts and soak in. And so this is the deep power of the gospel. It works from below the surface in order to produce life above the surface. In other words, the gospel works from the inside out. And so this is why, this is why the gospel actually works. Because it's not just about trying to, on that surface, right, just trying to bend our wills and to change our behavior. No, it gets down deeper than that. It gets down below the surface. It changes the motivational structures of your heart. It changes your very will, your affections. I'll use myself as an example. For, for as long as I can remember, I've considered myself a realist. But my family... They're probably um, more realistic about my realism and would call it what it is, pessimism. And uh, this is something that I carried into my marriage. Uh, Sandra noticed this, that I would assume the worst in situations. I would uh, often be quick to point out the flaws. I was rarely thankful. There was this sort of uh, cloud, a complaining attitude, whatever you want to call it, a grayness often about me. I lacked joy. Um, and what I, I didn't see until very recently was that I needed the gospel. That I hadn't uh, applied the gospel. I thought, you know, th- this is just like a, a character trait. This is just an aspect of me, right? I had never allowed the gospel to penetrate, to, to come down and reach and be applied to this aspect of my life. I had never allowed the gospel to go deep down into that area of me. And what I needed to see, right, it was that... Well, God expresses sorrow. Well, Jesus, it says, was a man of sorrows acquainted with Greek. Yes, towards a sinful world. Yes, that's true. But his eternal state is joy. His eternal state, he, he is the fountain of joy itself. Like C.S. Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven. And it was actually that joy that drove Jesus to the cross. We saw this. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And so who am I to complain? If Jesus could endure the cross with his eyes set on the joy before him, 
And through the resurrection, he has set before me a sure hope and a joy that cannot be taken away. What, what am I to say? Who am I to say? If I can't endure a few unfortunate circumstances, if I can't endure, yes, truly real sorrow in my life without griping and complaining, then clearly, clearly the gospel hadn't been allowed to penetrate that area of my heart. The gospel hadn't been allowed to go deep. And what were the effects of this? Well, I lack joy. I lack peace, right? This is obscuring my basic vocation as a Christian, right? Reflecting the joy of Jesus into the world. Making me weak against temptation and sin. There's a verse in scripture that says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And when we're not enjoying Jesus, well, other things begin to, to capture our attention, other joys, and we become weak. Is the joy of the Lord your strength? And so I hope you can see that what I'm talking about here isn't behavior modification. No, it's deeper than that. It's heart transformation. I'm not just telling you, you know, think happy thoughts, be positive, ten your, tell yourself ten good things about yourself today. No, no. You can't change your behavior like that. You can't change it by a pure force of will. That surface stuff, you got to go deeper. Rather, what happened? My heart being captured by the truth, the goodness, the beauty of Jesus going ahead of me to the cross, shaping, reworking my heart, filling me with his spirit. That's what I needed. And so to Jesus going ahead of me in joy, I respond with grateful joy. And I can say, honestly, I've had so much more joy. It's awesome. (laughs) Joy is the serious business of heaven. Have you allowed the gospel to go down deep to those voids of your heart? Penetrate. Change. Rework. What parts of it are you trying to hide? I can say, it's true, I'm still a work in progress, right? Has you, have you allowed the gospel to go down deep? Have you allowed it to penetrate your heart? Has the gospel affected the way you spend your money? Has the gospel affected the way you treat the poor, the socially outcast, the socially awkward? Have you allowed the gospel to affect the way that you express your sexuality? Have you allowed the gospel to affect the way you serve? The way that you do your work? This is, by the way, what I mean, what we mean when we talk about living everyday life with gospel intentionality. This is another sort of lingo or phrase, motto we throw all the time here. Living your everyday life with gospel intentionality. It's all about intentionally allowing the gospel to go deep and to penetrate every aspect of your life? Are you letting it have that impact on you? Is there anything that the Spirit of God is revealing to you as I speak? But this is good news, isn't it? Because you can actually change. God could change me. This is the kind of news that people need to hear. It's good news for everyone. It's good news for our whole world. That there's a change that's possible from the inside out. But the gospel must go deep. So how does the gospel going deep affect our church vision? Well, part of our vision is 
like what Paul says in Colossians uh, 1.28, that we want to present everyone mature in Christ. Maturity in Christ isn't just about knowing good th- theology, not saying you know, theology is not important. It's, but it's not about having all your doctrinal ducks in a row. Maturity in Christ is about seeing and knowing God to the point that he is able to transform your heart. It's a deep knowledge of your heart, right? And an ability to, to work out the gospel into every area of your life. So it's not primarily about information. It's about transformation. And so we don't want you dear person here today, you know, to, to attend and just stay the same. No, we want you to change. We want the gospel to, 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 to touch you, to go deeper in you. Yes, you, Christian, you too, obviously, of course. <laughs> and so our vision is to grow you into maturity in Christ, to see you transformed into his likeness, to take on his heart, his sense of justice, his sense of compassion, his sense of love, his sense of joy. This is what maturity in Christ looks like. That we want to present everyone mature in Christ. That means that there is no bystanders here. You're all in the game. You're all called to grow up into maturity in Christ, to embody him where you are. And so how do we practically try and help you uh, do this? Well, we encourage something called change groups. Guys with guys, girls with girls, one, two, three people. Um, in which you pray, and you study scripture, and you hold each other accountable, and you practice spiritual disciplines, right? We recognize things like that, spiritual disciplines, and obedience, and prayer, and study of the word, right? These are, these are things, they're, they're acts of obedience that are response to God's grace, but oh, do they take you deeper in the gospel. And so if you're not in a change group, um, I want to invite you to become part of one today, like uh, Ryan at the beginning held up the white contact card. You can fill one of those out, or you can come speak to me or anyone else in the pastoral staff after. We would love to grow, see you growing up into maturity in Christ. The gospel must go deep, and the gospel must go wide. It's for everyone. Right? We saw how it covers that default spectrum of the human heart from moralism to hedonism. You see this in the Gospel of John. Jesus interacts with a, a, a Nicodemus. He's a, a moralistic Pharisee. And then just page later, the woman at the well, a woman who it says had uh, seven husbands and the man that she was currently with wasn't her husband, someone who was pursuing pleasure. And so see this uh, anxious, moralistic Pharisee, legalistic, unjoyful, unhappy. And to this hedonistic woman, dissatisfied, Jesus, what does he do? He presents himself. He offers himself. Come to me, the living water. Saturate yourself in me, and then you'll be satisfied in me. Jesus, he is sufficient. This is what he's saying. He is enough for you. Beckett Cook, the set designer that I mentioned uh, earlier, the one who said, is, is this all there is? About six months after that. He encountered Jesus. And in encountering Jesus, he, he actually gave up an expression, expression of his sexuality that wasn't in line with the gospel. Difficult. But of that, he says, it was such a relief to be in a relationship with Christ. And talking about the part of him that he gave up, it didn't feel costly because I was so full 
of joy. Do you know that joy? Has the gospel gone wide? The gospel is for you. It's for everyone. It's sufficient. The word, Jesus, is the bread of life you can feast on. That's in verse 10. He is goodness itself. The word, Jesus, is the one we hear that our soul might live. That's in verse 3. He is truth itself. The word, Jesus, is the one in whom our souls delight. That's verse 2. He is beauty itself. You see how this takes us right back. You hear it now, right? We exist to see the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of the gospel saturate and transform Montreal for the glory of God and the good of all people. The gospel is for the good of all people. We long to see ourselves as a, a diverse church. It's part of what it means for the gospel being wide. But it also means that Well, we never move past it. We never move past the gospel. We've been forgiven through the gospel in the past, by the gospel in the past. We're being transformed by it in the present. It's secured for us a certain hope in the future. Tim Keller likes to say the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A through Zs. It's the sufficiency. It's sufficient for everything we do, have, are. It informs as a church all of our ministries, getting involved in cultural renewal, bringing our faith, connecting our faith with our work, our ministry of mercy and justice, however we express that through our city groups. And it forms everything we are. But if you're a Christian here, there's this possibility. There's a possibility that you hearing me talking about the gospel again sounds like old news to you, that it's lost its thrill, that it's lost its joy, that it's lost its goodness to you. And to that I'd say, turn back to Jesus. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to to refresh you, to refresh your heart with the, the truth and the goodness and the beauty of his news. Oh, that you would depend only on him for your sufficiency, for everything you are. And so Jesus would say to you what he said. He stood up at a feast, a feast that foresaw the end feast that's being talked about in his chapter. It says, Jesus stood up and cried. He cried, this chapter, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is the great invitation. Whoever believes in me, out of, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Those are rivers that come from a place of deep saturation, that come from a place of deep satisfaction, the sufficiency of God. Jesus is sufficient for you. And so the gospel must go deep and it must go wide. I'll end with this. And this takes us back to our original question. Why is it then that we put the gospel at the center of everything we think, we feel, we do, and ultimately are? Well, to summarize, right? Because it's powerful. It's life-giving. It actually works Right Below the surface, it changes us from the inside out. It's not just behavior modification. It's heart transformation. And it's good news. It's good news for every situation, for all people, all times, all places. The gospel becomes a sort of hub that informs every aspect of our life. A worldview. And so this is why, this is why we want the gospel reign to saturate us. What this text 
is about, the word coming down from heaven. We want gospel rain to, to settle down into the soil of our hearts, to fill every void in every space, to expel every thought and tension of our heart that isn't in line with the gospel, to allow its deep power and its wide sufficiency to soak us completely. That it, like it says in Ephesians, that Christ may be our all in all. And so see, in the end, gospel saturation, it's about being soaked. It's about being soaked in the abundant joy of Jesus, joy that he won for us at the cross. It's the realization that you can have more in the spirit even when you have already everything in Christ. That you and I, as believers, filled with the living spirit of God, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. My friends, we are not operating out of a place of lack, but out of a place of abundance. So while we might appear poor, we are not actually poor. While we might appear weak, we are not actually weak. While we might appear small, we are not actually insignificant. Why? Because we're not operating out of a place of lack, but a place of abundance and the joy of Jesus. This is the vision that he has for us. We exist to see the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of the gospel saturate and transform Montreal for the glory of God and the good of all people anticipating his return. This is not wishful thinking. This is not just moat, mundane, positive thinking of the surface. No, this is eschatological thinking. This is seeing the future in advance. This is gospel thinking. This is orthodox thinking because our joy and our hope is certain because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what we operate in. This is what this church is all about. The gospel is central to everything we do, we think, and we are. and informs everything. Do you know it? Has it penetrated deeply into your heart? Has it filled the sufficiency of your heart? So has it filled your life so he is sufficient to you? Are you satisfied in him? Come. Come, Jesus says, everyone who thirsts and let them drink of the water of life. This is his invitation to you. Will you come to this feast of grace? We'll move into a time of response. Jesus, would we approach you with joy? Jesus, the good, true, and beautiful thing that you won for us on the cross We walk in the abundance of that, Jesus. We thank you. I pray that this would shape our vision for years to come. That we would be all about you here. Nothing else but you, Jesus. That you would soak us completely down to fill every little void of my heart, every unconfessed area of my soul. Would I give that over to you? And I would say, Jesus, would you fill me? Would you saturate and transform me by your living, resurrected Spirit, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.